This is Ballot Box, the pointer's look at the issues on the ballot in Peel, in Niagara, at Queen's Park, and in Ottawa. Now, your host, Joel Whitnable. If you've been following the case of seven Ontario youth taking the provincial government to court over its lack of action on climate change, you'll most likely know that the case was dismissed last month. But the story is far from over. Despite its dismissal, there are still numerous storylines to explore and critical issues raised as part of this case. From the lawyers for the Ontario government using a climate change denier to argue its case, to government lawyers describing emissions reduction targets as, quote, meaningless, something that completely exposes the PC's stance on such a critical issue, to how this dismissal could actually have a silver lining in opening the door for other similar cases in the future. There's one aspect in particular of this case I want to focus on for this episode, and that's how far our court systems still have to go to become adequate tools for tackling climate change. To discuss this issue with me today are Danielle Gallant, a lawyer with EcoJustice, and Alex Neufeld, one of the seven youth involved in the previous case. Uh, Thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. And Danielle, before we jump into this, can you briefly explain the ruling that came out last month? The dismissal obviously wasn't what you or the plaintiffs were hoping for, but there was a silver lining there, as I mentioned. Can you kind of talk about it briefly? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as you mentioned, the overall result is a loss in the sense that the application that we brought forward was dismissed. But there are important positive elements within the decision that provide hope for both this case and and I think other climate cases in Canada. So on the one hand, the judge did find that Ontario's climate target falls severely short of what the science says must be done to address climate change. And because of that, Ontario is causing an increased risk of harm and death to Ontarians. And so because of that, the judge found it is sufficient to say that the target deprives Ontarians of their rights to life and security of the person under Section 7 of the Charter. However, there is a second step to the legal test to prove a violation under Section 7 of the Charter. And unfortunately, that's where the judge disagreed with us and said that the target was not arbitrary or grossly disproportionate. And this was mostly based on her interpretation that although the target is completely inadequate, it does reduce GHG emissions to some degree in the province. And so this was not a full violation under the charter. Danielle, were there any surprises for you in this case? You know, obviously you spent some time in court arguing and there was a lot of sort of back and forth For me, some things that kind of do track in terms of the PC government's track record on climate change and the environment, but from, like I said off the top, using someone who is a known climate change denier as sort of to help argue their case, but also them labeling something as important as a, you know, emissions reduction target as as meaningless. Like, were these things surprising to you as they were to some, you know, other readers who have reached out to us? It it is the first climate case in Canada to make it to a full hearing on the merits. So, you know, we did our best to prepare and, and kind of anticipate everything that the government might argue. But I think, you know, because of the novelty of the case, there were some things that came up that were a bit surprising, um, including the experts that Ontario decided to rely upon. But on the flip side, putting forward experts with such dubious credibility, especially compared to the consensus science of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, did put us in a good place to just be able to argue that those two things are not the same. And so the court should look at that consensus international body of science. And in the end, that is what she did. And she completely dismissed Ontario's evidence, um, as we hoped. Yeah, that that element of the the ruling was pretty decisive. <laughs> and uh, Alex, what was your reaction to the ruling? Was was there any frustration for you? You know, seeing the judge acknowledge 
so many of your arguments, so many of these, you know, terrible impacts that we're all feeling because of climate change, but then to effectively turn around and dismiss it all. Yeah, you said it very well. It was effectively quite frustrating. Like on the one hand, of course, we were very happy. I was very happy to see that the judge accepted all of our science and rejected Ontario's so-called experts. But on the other hand, if you can accept that all of these things, all of the science, all of the impacts climate change is going to have, and the fact that Ontario is contributing to climate change, but you still can't rule in our favor, ah, yeah, obviously frustrating. And I think that speaks to the state of the legal system right now. And fundamentally, I think what we hope to achieve with this case is to change the law, the state of the law in Canada. Yeah. And actually, Alex, that gets to really the the sort of meat of the key issue I wanted to kind of explore with the two of you with this podcast was we're seeing a lot more of these cases come forward, both in, in North America, but across the, the globe, really, in terms of people trying to challenge their governments on their lack of action to address the climate crisis. But are courts adapting fast enough? My reading of this ruling I was kind of left in this weird state between misunderstanding and, and anger that it seemed like the justice was near a tipping point in terms of considering a bold move. You read some of her language, you see sort of where her logic and where really where your logic in your case took her. And it was like she wanted to side with your case. But then instead of following what clearly may have been a gut instinct for her, and ignoring maybe some of these past precedents that she's maybe bound to follow. When it comes to something like this, these big issues, we've seen key issues in the past historically, whether it's civil rights in the United States, or even the way that Roe v. Wade kind of changed the legal landscape. And obviously, we know now it's being picked apart and dismantled in the United States. But what it did when it first came out was historical. But now with climate change, are we at a point now where we're essentially just waiting on one progressive judge to stand up and just break the mold and really kind of like change the legal foundation of all of this. And I'll throw that out to both of you. I know, Danielle, if you want to go first. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent and, and layered question. I mean, I think in some ways we can't rely solely on litigation as a method of affecting change because this is a crisis. We really need to hit it on so many different levels. But when governments just completely fail to do what is needed to address the crisis, then litigation can be a useful tool to go through the courts to get that action um, ordered against them. And especially in the context where that action is so, so severely out of line with science that it causes violations to our most fundamental rights to, to life and to health under the charter. And I will say that around the world, there have been these key legal victories on cases very similar to this one, and they have been key moments for climate action in those countries. So it's kind of, I don't think we need to wait for a victory in a case like this to act. But once a victory like this is secured in Canada, I think it will be, it will be a huge moment for climate litigation, both in Canada, but also throughout the world. And Alex, I don't know if you have anything to add to, to what Danielle said, but it just, obviously there's plans to appeal the case now? Are there hopes for that? Do you hope that maybe there is another judge that comes forward and really does sort of take that progressive step, as I mentioned? Yeah, and I think we have no choice but to try. As Danielle said, this is a crisis. We need to attack it from multiple levels, and litigation is one of the tools in our toolbox. And I think this is the kind of case that absolutely deserves to be heard by a higher court in order to have a more 
hopefully anyway, if it goes in our direction, a more binding precedent that could bind all governments in this country. So yeah, we're hopeful. We have great lawyers, obviously. So I should just speak for myself. I'm excited about the appeal. And like I said, I think we have no choice but to try and go forward and hope for the best. And Alex, obviously don't want to have you speak for all all seven of the, the youth plaintiffs that are involved in the case. But for yourself, someone who is obviously younger and who's going to experience could experience some of these really negative and really life-altering or even deadly consequences of of climate change. Is there ever a sense of overwhelming urgency when it comes to these sorts of things, but also have to deal with the reality that the court system moves very, very slowly? I just think of all these things that we're seeing in the world, whether it's wildfires here in North America and Canada, BC, California, or flooding in Pakistan, or you know famine, and all these other things that are, are happening right now. We know the climate crisis is barreling towards us. And then you have this bureaucratic institutional system just moving at an absolute glacial pace. You know, I try and put those things together and it's like, I'm left with an overwhelming sense of sort of frustration and concern and worry. And as someone who's involved in it, like yourself, I can't imagine how you're feeling. Yeah, it's, it is incredibly urgent. You're right. And I think if I let myself feel overwhelmed and hopeless, I wouldn't do anything. So I I really try to just keep moving forward. And what I tell myself is that, yes, this case is super important. What we're doing is necessary and could have the potential to really change things for the better. But the reality is, you know, even if we do win, which is what we hope for, this case isn't going to solve climate change on its own, right? We need to keep attacking from every side we possibly can. So, you know, when I'm not busy on this case or the other things I'm involved in, I am trying to lobby the government, push really hard with other organizations that I'm involved in. So it is incredibly urgent and it's frustrating. But at the end of the day, I do believe that this is a problem that the global community is starting to get on top of, but we just need to keep going. And I can't let myself be become overwhelmed. Yeah. And I know that that's it can be difficult at times, especially with all the news that we're seeing. But Danielle, to turn things around, you mentioned that there are examples of cases across the globe where we have seen success. And, and I just wonder for, for people who may not know what that looks like, I don't want to put you on the spot and have you label or name one of these examples and go through it. But I just wonder, we have this nexus between the government and how the courts could actually influence their sort of policymaking or decision-making. Can you explain, like, so what would a preferred outcome in this case be? Do the courts have the power to force the government of Ontario to turn around its ill-advised decision to weaken Ontario's climate reduction targets or emissions reduction targets? Like, what, what would success look like here, I guess, is the question. Yeah. So what we're asking for in this case, we're seeking what are called remedies or kind of legal conclusions on a few different things. The first one is simply for the court to declare that Ontario's actions are unconstitutional. So essentially just saying, you know, what Ontario did in repealing its previous targets and replacing them with a weak, inadequate target that's not aligned with science hurts people, harms them and causes an increased risk of death and therefore is unconstitutional. But we're also asking the court to order Ontario to set a new science-based target and develop a plan that would reach that target. And so that that's the victory that we're seeking in this case. And, and you asked about other cases throughout the world, and the most famous example is the Urgenda case in the Netherlands. And this was really the first time that a court 
looked at a government's target and compared it to what science was saying and said, this is this is not sufficient and ordered the government to set a new target. And so they won at the first level, they won on appeal, and they even won in front of the Supreme Court of the Netherlands. And so that has really been this key moment in climate action when lawyers throughout the world started thinking, well, could this be replicated in my country, in my jurisdiction? And so that was really, I think, one of the the moments that that started everyone throughout the world thinking about these types of cases. And now there's cases like this in, in so many different countries. There's multiple of them in Canada. And so it's really great to see this global movement of citizens and people standing up to their governments like this. Is there a bureaucratic barrier there or something that, you know, I think about climate change, it's a global issue. So shouldn't the justice in this case have been able to pull from other jurisdictions and, and use maybe that as an example, you know, the case in the Netherlands as a support for maybe supporting your case? Or is she not able to pull that that as precedent because it's sort of in a, another jurisdiction? Yeah, courts don't generally view decisions in other countries as binding. However, they can find them to be persuasive. And the, the judge in this case actually did find the Urgenda case to be a persuasive example of, of a court finding that a target fell severely short of the scientific consensus. And one thing we haven't touched upon yet is this important finding that the judge made that the case is justiciable. And what I mean by that is that it's an appropriate legal question for the courts to decide. And this may sound like a kind of basic issue, but it's it's something that every other climate case based on the charter in Canada has struggled with and has so far failed on that basis that courts have said this is too political an issue for us to weigh in on. If we do, we'll step on the toes of the, the two other branches of government. And so the mere fact that the judge found that this case was appropriate for her to decide on is a huge win for climate litigation in Canada. And and thank you, uh, Danielle, for bringing that up, because obviously that was that silver lining that I mentioned. There was a couple of things there, and that was one of the big ones. So thank you for that. And now with that, on that question, now that we have a decision or a ruling that these things are justiciable before the courts, do you anticipate that there may be other cases like this coming forward, maybe in Ontario or other jurisdictions that may be now starting to challenge? Because obviously, when you look at climate targets in in other provinces and even in the country, some would argue that they're not ambitious enough. Potentially, could this ruling open the door for more legal challenges? You know, I think just given the urgency of the issues, it was already inevitable that legal challenges of this kind would start being brought against different governments in Canada. But especially now that this key precedent has been set that courts can hear these cases, I I think that will potentially encourage other litigants, maybe other youth even, to to bring cases against their own government. And on that, is this a matter of unfortunately trying to bringing a climate change issue before the court? Could we be trying to put a square peg in a round hole? When you look at this issue, and I'll you know I'll, I'll talk about the, the ruling when she when the justice is really laying out some of these things, agreeing that the threat of climate changes causes severe risk of increased death to Ontarians, and admits that this is a huge problem that we need to get on top of, and we need the governments to to do more to address it, but then not rule it as a, a violation of the charter. But if you put the court system aside, anyone is going to say that if something is causing someone an increased risk of death. How is that not a violation of the charter? But then when you get into the court system, obviously there's these binding precedents and other things that the judges in the legal system have to sort of follow. When it comes to that bold decision, really you need a judge that's just going to maybe disregard some of that and be like, look, 
this is an issue of our time and and I, I'm going to make a pretty bold move here. And this may be, you know, maybe the, the emotional side of this argument that it's crazy to think that someone can say, oh yeah, there's an increased risk of death and then just really not do anything about it. And I just wonder, are the courts the right place to fight or tackle climate change? I can provide maybe a quick take from a lawyer perspective is these types of kind of novel issues that are brought in front of court. It's often at the appellate level of courts that kind of those key changes in law happen. And I'm not saying that it's it's necessary, even in this case, that the law changed that much. The way we argued the case was really that you could actually, on the basis of the law as it exists, find a violation. But if the law has to evolve, that is something that the appellate courts and especially the Supreme Court of Canada are quite a bit more accustomed to doing than the kind of first level trial judges. And, you know, I think it's something that you can see in the decision that it's acknowledged this is based on the current state of the law and there may be an evolution of the law. And and so in those other cases that have established key key precedents and key rights like same-sex marriage and access to abortion, it has sometimes taken going all the way to the Supreme Court to establish those kinds of victories. And so it's something that we we weren't necessarily surprised about and we were always prepared to do in this case. Do you see things progressing to that level in this case? I think so. I think as the first case to make it to a full hearing on this, I I think it has the potential to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And so it's an incredibly important case to to follow for that reason. But there's obviously other cases that that have been launched in Canada and that are also proceeding and important to watch as well. And Alex, for you, do you have anything to add to that? Obviously, being one of the plaintiffs, it was your impetus that brought this forward or your inspiration and your desire to see change that was part of this coming forward to the courts. Is there a reason why or do you have any explanation as why you felt the court case or the courts themselves were the avenue for this and maybe not? Or we see advocacy on these issues across the globe. Obviously, Greta Thunberg being the most obvious example of of taking climate advocacy to the next level. But obviously yourself and the six others chose the courts. And I don't know if you want to explain that decision and and whether you have any thoughts on maybe the bit of a mismatch that could be happening there. I wouldn't say that the courts are the avenue. They are an avenue among one of many others. And I think the other applicants are also very involved in a bunch of different activist tactics, I guess you could say, and different avenues to address the climate crisis. So The courts certainly, we're not viewing it as like the thing to do. On the other hand, I think there are studies out there, or at least one, that show that, you know, if you get a binding decision from a court on this type of issue, it can be a lot more impactful. It packs a lot more of a punch than maybe some smaller actions that aren't targeting the legal system. So I think we got to try. There's no guarantee of success, but if we do succeed, it would absolutely be huge and it would transform the legal landscape forever. So I think we have no choice but to try. Yeah. And if I, if I can just jump on, jump in on there, cause I think that's, that's a really good point that Alex just raised. And I think that's also the importance of putting these types of cases in the context of the charter, alleging violations of constitutional rights. So let's say, you know, there's a change of government, there's a change of law. You could then potentially, you know, lose any progress you make. But here, if we establish that this government action did violate charter rights, that is a clear precedent and something that the government has to act on because it can't act in a way that's unconstitutional. So I think it's also significant to put these types of issues in the language of our fundamental rights of the charter. 
could have long lasting permanent effects as opposed to maybe a, a small short term victory, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it just it doesn't mean that a government can just simply change and, and all of a sudden change its approach. And, and if you had achieved any gains in that regard, that they could be completely undone, you know, a clear charter precedent would be would be hugely significant. And my final question to both of you, and I'll just throw this out, this is sort of a general question, not related to the case or obviously connected to the case, but I just wonder why does it have to come to this? Why do seven young people in this province have to go to court to get their government, their elected officials, to pay attention to one of the most significant, impactful, and potentially deadly issues of our time? It seems absolutely ridiculous that this is sort of what it's come to, putting aside the fact that the PC government's track record on any of this when it comes to climate change, environmental action, species protection, any of that stuff, it's just abysmal, bottom of the barrel. But I just wonder, is there a fundamental disconnect between youth and the younger generations and the elected officials, mostly who are perhaps older and may not have grown up with the climate crisis looming over their lives? For their entire existence. And I just wonder, like, there's not much of a question in there. I just wonder, why does it have to come to this? Oh, boy, that's, that's a loaded question. I don't know. I wish I knew. I'm also wondering the same thing. Why did it have to come to this? I think there's probably a few different things. I think the disconnection between youth and elected officials who tend to be older is definitely a factor. I think colonialism as well, viewing the earth as a resource to be exploited as opposed to our shared home is a mentality that's pervasive, certainly among the political class, I would say, which is very troubling. Uh, And then maybe also lack of scientific literacy, like so many, so many people just seem very uneducated on the science of climate change. And I certainly am not an expert. There's a lot more that I should know than I do. But I, I sometimes volunteer and lobby politicians. And there's often such huge gaps in their knowledge about climate policy, about the science of climate change. It's kind of scary. So I think that also plays a role. Yeah, and I would just say if elected governments are going in and doing these types of changes and no one is holding them accountable for them, then they may just continue on with the status quo. So I think that's part of the reason these types of cases are important to call out when governments act in a way that puts the people who live in that province or in that country so far at risk. You really have to call them out. And the legal system is one way to do that. Yeah, I I agree. And I, you know, accountability is such a huge element of this case. And really think what Alex just said in terms of this colonial mindset, viewing the world as, as a resource to be exploited and not something to be preserved and protected and enjoyed is a very poignant statement. It's something that I think permeates a lot of the discussions and a lot of the stories that when it comes to the environment today that we're writing about, because it's clear that the way we have handled things, whether that's urban development or resource extraction, or any of these things that the way Ontario or way other places have done it in the past is just no longer sustainable. And we have to find a new way of doing things. And this court case could be a step towards changing the direction that Ontario's climate action has been going. And so I think this is a good spot to end for today. And I want to thank you both, Danielle and Alex, for being here and and for the work that you're both doing to fight on this issue. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Ballot Box. Ballot Box.
Talks was hosted by Joel Whitnable, produced by yours truly. Join us next week for the Pointer's ongoing coverage of the issues on the ballot. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. See you next time.